I think this idea that office repositions as as residential is really an empty promise for most of that BC office stock. I think the winners are going to be truly interesting historic buildings or mid-century buildings that have a real sense of place and connectivity or very modern new construction, ESG compliant, cutting edge buildings. Hi, I'm Susan Freeman. Welcome back to our Property She podcast series brought to you by Mishkondorea in association with the London Real Estate Forum, where I get to interview some of the key influencers in the world of real estate and the built environment. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Michael Phillips. Michael is the principal and the chairman and president of Jamestown and a member of the firm's executive committee. As president, Michael oversees the development and execution of the company's real estate projects globally. During his tenure, Jamestown has grown its portfolio of assets in key markets throughout the US and expanded its investment footprint to South America and Europe, more than tripling the firm's assets under management. Michael is a driving force behind the company's adaptive reuse projects, including Chelsea Market in New York, Ponce City Market in Atlanta, Industry City in Brooklyn, and Girardello Square in San Francisco. He's nationally recognized for his creative leadership and ability to build unique, iconic urban centers. He attended the American University in London. So now we're going to hear from Michael Phillips about Jamestown, and the vision behind the creation of some of the world's most successful urban places. So, Michael, it's great to speak to you. Where where are you this morning? Good morning, uh, Susan. I'm in uh, New York City this morning. Ah, well, greetings from London, where it is absolutely freezing cold. I hope you've got better weather there. Well, we have the same weather here, and I'll be there next week, so I'm hoping yours improves. I hope so. So it was it was really good to meet you when you were in London um, just before Christmas. And I understand that you know London pretty well and that you studied here in the past. Yes, I did. I studied there in uh, 1987 and 88, quite a long time ago, but have been a frequent visitor back and have had a house there for quite some time. And did you think about staying in London when you were studying here? Yes, of course. I think that was certainly was uh, many people's dream and many people made that a reality. We have often in our family thought about making that our our full-time spot, but circumstances drove me in a different direction as a young man, so I ended up on this side. Well, tell me a little bit about the circumstances <laughs> and um, and what happened to you as a young man. Well, early in my career, I, I actually started a retail company, and that that was at the invitation of my sister, who had the idea. And so that's what brought me back from London at the time. And that retail company grew quite a lot and then became a manufacturing business and then became a property business. And and that's where I am today. So one thing led to another and here we are. We are. So um, you're now chairman and president of of Jamestown, which um, for our listeners who don't yet know Jamestown is is a global design focused real estate investment and management company, which has been going for some 40 years. And at what stage did you join Jamestown? How long have you been there? So I joined, I was originally a 
a neighbor of Jamestown's on a property that they had invested in. And I own the shopping center next door. And I came in to help them post-2008. And then eventually we merged and I never left. And here we are today. So it was, uh, you know, like many things, I think adjacencies are important and relationships are paramount. That is a real adjacency. So... Jamestown are primarily active in in, in the US and uh, Latin America and, and Europe, but not yet really known in London, other than by the placemaking experts who in, insisted when they heard I was going to New York before Christmas, they said, you have absolutely got to see Industry uh, City in Brooklyn. So just to get us started, can you tell our listeners a little bit about Jamestown and, and how you operate? Yes, of course. So we are indeed 40 years old and our roots are really in a a relationship between German closed-end fund syndication and property investment in the US, which came through a tax-efficient treaty for German investors. And we've had a series of funds over 40 years. Really, uh, we're on 32nd of our core plus funds and we've had two opportunistic funds and to timber funds. And so we really started our roots in that way. In about 2011, we branched into institutional fundraising business and investment business uh, with a private REIT structure. And then we've had a series of separate accounts, which brought us to Europe only really about five years ago. And through separate accounts, ended up with investments in Wales and Scotland, and then continued to look at Great Britain. For us, in sort of where we like to invest. Large adaptive reuse assets are our great love, but we also invest in grocery anchored and high street retail and have historically invested in mixed use office and residential as well. So we're actively looking for our first sort of major project in England. That's interesting. And you mentioned large because, you know, obviously when you look at something like Industry City, that is large. I think it's about 35 acres. The sort of things that you would be looking at in London, what sort of scale would you be looking for? Because obviously it's more difficult. Yeah, it's a great question. I think I think finding historically or iconically relevant properties is not hard in Great Britain, but certainly not in London. What we believe is that really to effectuate the strongest place strategy in conjunction with long-term revenue streams to support the community and the investment thesis, really between you know 500,000 and 2 million square feet or uh, 50,000 to 200,000 square meters, depending on the, the metric, right, are our ideal. And we've worked across, we've worked in certainly smaller formats, 100 to 300,000 square feet. But we find that it really is the same amount of work and the same amount of disciplines engaged. So the, the larger the asset, the better the budgets are, the better deployment you can have. And, and certainly when you talk about mixed use, the more critical mass in each one of those sectors you're able to effectuate. In a minute, we'll have a look at um, you know some of your specific hubs and um, and properties. But I just wanted to turn to a description of you in a, an article I was looking at uh, recently, which says that um, 
you are to placemaking what Leonard Bernstein was to music and that you're a maestro with a sixth sense for your subject and a gift for orchestrating many moving parts. And I thought, well, you know, that is quite an endorsement. And I just wondered, you know, when you're looking at a potential site, what makes something transformational? What sort of elements do you need? I mean, what makes it tick for you? Well, first, I think that was a very generous compliment. <laughs> I'm not sure I would put myself in that in that category at all. But I, I would say that human scale and human accessibility is something that many people take for granted and inadvertently disregard. And I think I'm a great fan of architecture and high quality architecture but often i think that we are drawn to architecture as something you see at its whole not the first sort of 30 feet and the engagement kind of at the ground and how it makes one feel i think aspiration is really important in architecture but intimidation is a really damaging byproduct often. And so I strive and we strive in our business to really create really approachable places that people really feel sort of reinforce them and give them kind of tailwinds that don't create headwinds. And what I mean by that is so often you see a large white marble lobby with banks of security and turnstiles for security and that's not how the new workforce sees themselves working or living. They see themselves in a much more frictionless experience and a much more community-driven experience. Security is necessary, absolutely. But what was thought by our parents to be the work environment that we aspired to be in, that represented power and success and money and, and design, isn't necessarily what younger workforces are looking for. I think there's a place for it everywhere, but gratuitous luxury for luxury's sake isn't really what we think drives enduring places. We think enduring places thrive because they have really interesting architecture, but most importantly, they have really strong senses of community that people feel at once like they belong or they want to belong to. And so I think that recipe for what creates that or or what what allows people to feel that yeah there's just like in in cooking there's a, a million different recipes for roasting a chicken and they're all really good but the one that that each of us chooses is unique to our own set of values and approach and so ours tends to be really humble sort of inclusive colorful you know very layered um architecturally and quite often, I believe that we as humans live in very imperfect environments. And so striving to create perfect environments is a little bit of a friction point for people. And so I think some imperfection and some, some things that are unfinished, the story's not ever really completely told, I think creates the most interesting environments. I don't know if that, it sounds a little bit esoteric, but but that's kind of how we have approached creating place. Okay. So I think what would be interesting at this point is to, you know, maybe just look at some of your 
your projects and your communities and and just talk about it a little bit. So I, I mentioned Industry City uh, in Brooklyn as somewhere that I was told I just, you know, I needed to go to and visit when I went to New York last. And I just wondered how it came about, because it seems to be quite a sort of unique mixture of, of uses with some, you know, manufacturing and, and um, you know, creative industries. And it would be interesting to know how it came about, how you created the mix of uses that that you have and how you how you see it sort of going forward. You know, is there anything not quite in the mix yet? You you know, you you mentioned, you know, these projects as a sort of ongoing story. So so just tell us a little bit about Industry City. Sure. So Industry City is six million square feet on what was originally 35 acres. Now it's 110 acres, which includes a big piece of the working waterfront, which we are employed in a wind power project on. But the original site, really, when we acquired it with our partners, was 6 million square feet, about 50% occupied, about 40% rent paying, with mostly storage and fairly dormant uses. There were 800 people working there every day. It's in Sunset Park in Brooklyn, which is a part of Brooklyn that no one would have ever really heard of. It's not Greenpoint. It's not Williamsburg. It's not Brooklyn Heights. It really is between many places. And what we what we sensed about it was its scale alone. And I would liken this a little bit to something that might be a little closer to, to you, which is River Cafe in Fulham, which was originally a canteen and was really not open to the public. But 31 years later, and I was there the first year it was open when I was in uni, and I was there, I go there every year many times. It resonated with people as a place for food and culture and community. And it's a very small example, but we saw very much a similar thing in this part of Brooklyn, in that as families formed, they moved from the northern neighborhoods more onto the southern side of central Brooklyn to where the schools were and the parks were. And we could create a place to catch both families very much rooted in community and place, the food culture, the arts culture with over 500 artist studios, and also respond to what is, I think, the backbone of New York, which is a very multi-ethnic, multicultural experience. So in our food culture, we have 45 food businesses and they represent a very wide spectrum of, of that. But we also have film production and music and graphic design and architecture and furniture making. So we have traditional crafts and we have really interesting industries. We early moved the Brooklyn Nets, which are the basketball, the pro basketball team, their practice facility and their offices and also hospital for special surgery clinic there. So that became a great anchor around sport and engagement for young people as a community outreach program. So Industry City is now about 15,000 people a day working there and has visitors of between 25 and 30,000 on weekends. It is representing, I think, a cross-section of the city and was the beneficiary, much the way kind of outlying areas in London have become the beneficiary of pressures in Manhattan and Central City to find more affordable 
but also more like-minded people in a collaboration of community. And so it is an example of that for us. We're about eight years in. We've enjoyed it immensely. What's still yet to come are probably more performance and art venues, certainly more and more professional services, offices, and uh, and increasingly capturing the design and home furnishings industry, which is something we focused on quite heavily from the beginning. We have Cowan and Tout's offices there, which is obviously you have them at, at Chelsea Design Center in, in London, but more of those kinds of uses as it goes. And as I said, it's a story that's never really completely written because buildings have many half-lives. And so we're just one, we're stewards for one portion of time, but we think that we took something that was originally a industrial facility built to support the military that really lost its purpose after the wars and repurposed it as a really strong community space and a business transactional environment. It's really um, exciting. And so you presumably have curated this. I mean, the, these uses haven't just evolved. You've sort of looked at it and, and sort of, you know, to see what's, you know, what's going to work best. I mean, is there anything that you've put in there which you thought would work tremendously well and just didn't take off at all? Um, yes. I mean, I think there's there's lots of examples of people who come early and really want to be there. And, and maybe, you know, we, at one point we had antique stealers who I think were some of the best antique stealers in, in the East end of Long Island in a place called the Hamptons. And they wanted to do a New York showroom and they came to do it, but they weren't really, it was a side goal for them. And I don't think anyone doing something in New York or Brooklyn should ever do it as a side business. It should be a primary business. And we didn't have critical mass of home furnishings at that time. So I would sort of maybe give that as an example. One thing I think that has been really resonant and exciting is we have 14 buildings. Obviously, it's a very big site. We decided to curate areas. And one thing we created was something called Distillery Row, which has Aperol and gin distillers and vodka, but also has a really important sake brewer and, and beer breweries. And so it's centered around a courtyard in the base of an 800,000 square foot building. But that became the amenity base and the engagement model that allows multiple kind of layers of community to come at different times. And so I thought that has turned out to be a surprisingly enjoyable, obviously, um, as anything with spirits would be, but also a great creative outlet as people test and iterate new new flavors and products. That sounds like real, real fun. And then the other Chelsea market in Meatpackers District is obviously, you know, one of your sites that uh, you're pretty well well known for and, and that has i mean that has a food focus doesn't it it does so the base of it is quite a famous food hall called chelsea market it actually sits at the base of a 1.1 million square foot office and industrial building and is in between about six million really the total of about six million feet of office that represented the office in the meatpacking district just adjacent and at one point, we owned all of that square footage with our partners, and 
developed Chelsea as the base kind of engine of community. And it started early as really a food manufacturing spot where you had windows that you could walk up to bakers and butchers and uh, seafood importers and take something away. But it was a secondary purpose. The real primary purpose, because the rents were low, were to provide people a place to produce their product and distribute their product. And over time, it really grew into a very credible, well-respected food market with some elements that were kind of added, great rotating art shows, some really specifically carefully curated Moroccan imports and a variety of other things that were non-food. But the food culture was really the basis. And we had the Food Network, which incubated upstairs. We have New York One, the television, a local television station. We now have YouTube studios there. And ultimately, Google bought that for part of their New York campus, all of that 6 million square feet and more. And we most recently worked with them to develop the Pier 57 Food Hall, which is a mission-based sort of fundamentally local incubator food hall. But all that was really kind of centered around being the economic generator for the whole West Chelsea district where the High Line is based. Interesting what you said before about... um engagement at ground floor level because having been to Chelsea Market on several occasions I don't think I've actually you know I probably haven't looked up I've just been (laughs) on the ground floor and one of your other assets which I find quite fascinating is um, one Times Square and the site of the uh, New Year's Eve ball drop which obviously appears in uh, many many films and You've been reading about the um, virtual version of the building that you have in the in the metaverse, which um, you know, and obviously you're doing refurbishment works now, and so you've got this virtual presence in the metaverse. And I believe you run a virtual New Year's Eve event in the metaverse, which you know is is attracting millions of people. And it'd be really interesting to hear from you how that came about. You know how people are engaging with it. Sure. So. Maybe before we leave the ground plane thing, I'd make one more comment, which is often developers think about what happens on the upper floors of the building as the most important thing. And the ground plane is an afterthought or a requirement by municipalities, by planning, by code to create an active streetscape. We actually believe that you create the most dynamic ground plane that is really agnostic of what happens upstairs, not in actuality, but in intent, because then that being the most healthy and vibrant thing really drives the experience on the upper floors and creates an identity and a workplace that helps employers attract and retain the best and brightest workforce that creates the most engaging non-cost amenity to the employers upstairs, but really not really thinking about it as a second priority, but thinking about it really very much as primary priority. And the community in place wins out in terms of driving ultimate value. Um, It doesn't mean you don't create all of the ESG compliant and best quality office space upstairs, but you have to have equal priority there. So on to One Time Square. I would say One Time Square we've owned for just shy of 27 years. It's a hundred-year-old building that was built at the nexus of uh, the south end of Times Square. It's what you would call, classify a flat iron building. 
The floor plates are about, on average, about 4,200 square feet, so quite small. And uh, it's a knife edge at the southern end of the bow tie. For most of our ownership and long before us, the building had been largely vacant inside, except housing our production staff on a couple of floors. But it's a 22-floor building wrapped with signage and having the mechanism that the ball drops. As a result of owning it for this period of time, we produce New Year's Eve with Times Square Alliance in the city of New York. And it's been a really robust, incredibly dynamic partnership. But one of the things we found going into COVID, really 2017 before COVID, is that the nature of signage and the competition in the New Year's Eve space around the world was continuing to change and evolve. And so we embarked on creating a virtual experience and streaming experience, both in the metaverse and virtual online. Some of that was about sort of digitally twinning and creating a second marketplace. But as we think about Web 3.0 and how we engage post a simple Google search world, but where we actually want to three-dimensionally experience places and transport ourselves to other locations and to experience goods and services without physically being there. The metaverse is an incredible tool to do that as a marketing engine. And so as we launched that experience, it included avatar performances of real singers and performers and bands in the virtual space. It included a gaming platform, which had people gaming. Uh, we had 3 million people gaming on January 2nd, well after the event. We extended the hours of experience and spoke to a fundamentally different demographic and generation that grew up experiencing life not through broadcast television, but really through online and gaming. And so we found that to be a really important aspect of how we communicate. I think I, I stated that the building's 100 years old. It started its life as the home of the New York Times newspaper. So it's always been a communication beacon to the world. And what we say in the US is that Every sort of major win or loss or event that happens in the U.S. and certainly throughout the world happens in some level in Times Square, either a celebration, a protest, a sense of mourning, whatever that is. And so using the metaverse and virtual as another tool to expand broadcasting communication, much the way this podcast, you know, podcasts really didn't exist the way they do today, 10 years ago, and now they're pretty ubiquitous part of the way we we consume uh, content, we really thought that the virtual and the metaverse experience was essential. And through that process, we took the viewers of New Year's Eve from 110 million to 300 million over two and a half years. And so that has been a really rewarding, not easy, but a rewarding experience. And I would say that you know, the, the the crypto world, which tokenomics and all that dialogue, which is separate but related, has created a little bit of a quell on the information about what's happening in the metaverse. But the metaverse is really still a really vibrant, growing platform for marketing and engagement. Yes, I hope so. Because, you know, if you roll back year or so we were talking about the metaverse the whole you know the whole time and what was going on what you could design in the metaverse you know who was 
taking space in the metaverse and it's gone it's gone a little bit quiet i would say part of that is is you know the world itself is you know we saw what happened with some of the the exchanges and the challenges around uh regulation and compliance which is really much more about tokenomics but the metaverse also had a lot of different messages about how people were engaging with it. But I think the thing that's really interesting is digitally twinning buildings for for managing energy consumption and use and heat maps of how people are engaging with them. And I think obviously Web 3.0 as a way to experience goods and services. So if you think about online purchases and mail order, yeah, which is an older term, and the amount of returns that an Amazon gets. The idea that you can build an avatar of yourself that is your exact dimensions that you can try on clothes virtually promises incredible opportunities for reduction of waste and packaging and shipping and carbon if people adopt it as a widely used technology. No, absolutely. So, I mean, yes, it's. I mean, it's really. I mean, it's really the beginning with the metaverse, isn't it? And uh, I think we're just sort of feeling our way a little bit. So, I also wanted to ask you about, um, you know, how you reposition assets because you have a, a a property in Rotterdam, which I can't pronounce, but it's it's GHG, isn't it? GHG. <laughs> Maybe you can pronounce it, but. Um, I was reading that you are planning to reposition it as um, an innovation hub. And I, I just wondered how you go about doing that. Sure. So for all the Dutch people that may be listening, um, please don't judge me too harshly. But I would say it's called Groot Handelskabau, which was originally the first building built of scale in the Netherlands post-World War II. And it sits on the land of the original zoo next to the central train station. It is a 1.3 million square foot building and was built really as an innovation hub at the time, which is quite fascinating. It was built as a sort of trademark to showcase the goods and services of the Dutch manufacturing base in this port city, right? That for people coming in and out of, of Rotterdam and to showcase kind of the best that the Dutch had to offer. And included food, included car dealerships, included offices and shipping and distribution. And what we focused on, it also had a, a theater on the roofs and a bowling alley in the basement. So there was an entertainment retail component. So what we focused very much on is creating a very activated rooftop with gaming and amusements and the theater um, to sort of bring that back. But we also have Cambridge Innovation Center which is a, a key tenant there, which is has been fostering the incubation of really innovative companies from people in shipping logistics to energy to carbon sequestration. Uh, so we have that innovation happening in the hub. And then we have architects and engineers and clothing designers and, and import-export companies around food and fashion. And so we approached it really from the standpoint of it had this great history and was an incredible piece of mid-century architecture, but also was, you know, Rotterdam is quite a serious city. It has one of the best universities and 
not far south of us is something called Eindhoven, which is considered to be the brain port of Europe. And in terms of where Philips originally started, but then became also an innovation hub. So our goal has been to have the building communicate across channels, across locations, and to build a workforce and a tenant base and a community interface that still showcases the best of the Netherlands, but also in, invites people from all across the world. You know, the Netherlands is a place that has a very diverse ethnic makeup as well. So, you you know, the 110 countries represented in the building and workforce and companies. And so as we think about what makes the most dynamic places, whether it's in Brooklyn or it's in Rotterdam or it's in London or Leeds or Birmingham or Manchester or any of these cities that have great, really bright workforces and diverse representation, we want to create places that I think I said earlier are are humble, are aspirational, are inclusive, are dynamic, and a very base level nurture the communities they serve. And so Groot Handelskabau, or GHG, as for those of us who are not uh, great Dutch speakers, sort of promises all of those things and has delivered that way for quite a long time. And so I don't know if that sort of gives you a little bit of color on. No, it sounds um, it's really useful. And I'm sort of, you know, listening to you talking about, you know, these projects and thinking about, you know, what we have in London and the UK. And I just wondered what your thoughts were on the on the London market and, um, you know, what our challenges and opportunities are, say, compared to the other cities that you are active in. I find it a singularly fascinating ecosystem. I think it is truly for many, many years has been sort of the the most international city in Europe in terms of sort of trade, engagement, people. I think Brexit has put a bit of a, a temporary kind of question mark there, but I think it still very much is that place. I don't think any other city operates in quite the same way. I find one of the challenges obviously is the London property market is is really considered to be super prime prime no matter what, even if it isn't prime. You know, there's either families or sovereigns or people who are willing to pay. And that doesn't always equate to value creation for the community. I think obviously housing is a challenge, uh, affordable housing for everyone. But I think as as London leans into what the 21st century really means to attracting and, and retaining the best workforce. I think it has all of the components of that, maybe with the exception of the best weather. But I think <laughs> I think your food culture is outstanding. I think the arts culture is amazing. And I think what's really fascinating is really just how international it is. And for all of us, I think we want our children to be exposed to as many influences as they can. And I think the city really offers that in many ways. And when you look at, at London and, and obviously, you know, knowing what you are doing sort of elsewhere in the world, I mean, are there projects that you you see, things that are, that are happening on the ground, I mean, in London or the rest of the UK, where you think, oh, you know, that's the sort of thing I would do. Yes, you know, that's good. That works. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, we have some great friends in the space called Kinrise. And I think what they did at 
at Canada House in, in Manchester is fascinating. I think there's many, I think London's second cities in many ways are really dynamic places where that is occurring in a, an organic way. I certainly think, you know, Birmingham has, has lots of that. I think, you know, something like Olympia, oddly, kind of could promise that because it has the traffic, it has the association. It certainly has the capital investment. I think it'll be interesting to see how real human it really is when it delivers, because I think it's important that places offer that. You know, I, I, I think Battersea Power Station is a truly awe-inspiring place. I'm not convinced it's a place that has enough humanity yet. I think it could really, it could use a, a few layers of that. I see a lot of traffic there, but I don't see a lot of stickiness in people calling it their place. Not in the way that, that people call other neighborhoods their place in, in London. It's interesting, you, you use the word yet. So it's it's sort of early days, I think, for Battersea. And I mean, just amazing that after uh, 30, more than 30 years, um, we actually got the project. You know, it's, it's amazing that the power station building is still standing and it would have been so much easier to bulldoze it and just, you know, build lots of flats. Yeah, I think it's astounding. And I think that it is a testament to great perseverance and investment and vision. And I think it is a place that, I aspire to go and engage with. And so I, I mean it with, with no great, more as a critique around the edges of how do you make it feel a little more human? Not that it isn't already amazing, because it is. But, but as we think about place, it almost speaks to some of the same questions earlier. Is architecture alone enough? The answer is no. Does food really need to be local? And does retail also need to, to be non-nationally or internationally anchored? Does it also need to be local? And what do we do to create places and casual collisions for people? And how do we make the architecture feel human enough that you can feel like you just want to hang out there? And I think that there's lots of examples of, of that on that site. And that's why I say yet. Because I think, you know, warmth is, is important. Yeah, even if we don't have the weather, we can provide warmth. But as you're talking about that and how you get people to engage, I'm thinking about King's Cross and Granary Square and the, you know, the fountains. Somehow, it, you know, it works. You know, people come in from the, you know, surrounding community with their kids. And when, you know, when the weather is a little bit warmer, you know, you just all see them playing in the little fountains in Granary Square. And that just somehow you know, seems to work. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is a sort of singular kind of social infrastructure investment that really functions. The challenge a little bit is you want it to function 365 days a year, not just when the fountains are there. So I like that they bring the food trucks to the plaza and would love to see more embedded, permanent kind of engagement around that plaza. I think something that's really successful there that I think is fantastic are the little kind of the retail on the little lanes and the alleyways and the crevices. I also thought that the David Hockney show at the light box was really fantastic. Oh, it's brilliant. And I think that was a space that maybe was intended to be a movie theater. And at the end they pivoted and they came up with this solution. I think that that, that production and experience was fantastic. Um, I know it's ending now. 
but I really, I think King's Cross is a really dynamic, interesting area. Yes, you mentioned the Hockney exhibition, and what I was particularly surprised at is how many young children there were there, and they were literally, these little kids were just dancing around, enjoying the lights and and everything, and, uh, you know, it definitely worked. So, as I mentioned, I've been in New York recently. I hadn't been since well before COVID. And I wonder, you know, what's going on there? Because, you know, places like Brooklyn and Soho and the Meatpackers District were buzzing. But Midtown just seems quiet. People haven't come back to the office. You know, some of the department stores are boarded up. And, you know, we keep hearing that the US office market is is suffering. But you know, I just wondered how how you see that, whether, you know, that's something that's going to need reinventing or whether it's going to bounce back. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So I think that Midtown as defined, the central Midtown, which I would say from 44th Street to 55th or 56th, sort of Lexington to 7th Avenue, has always been a bit commodity. And really going back to, we sold our, we had 1290 Avenue Americas there. We had 535th. Those buildings really didn't see a lot of major rent growth in the last sort of 12 or 15 years. The Plaza District, which is 57th Street to the park and parts of Park Avenue, really are a bit of a, a more boutique, higher end story. But we saw the rezoning of Midtown East, which was the idea that you could really supersize those buildings as a solution to redeveloping that housing stock. And the first one is obviously one Vanderbilt, and it's been an incredible success, uh, achieving really the highest rates really in the United States, I think, for that kind of product. And so I think it's going to take more of that. I think this idea that office repositions as as residential is really an empty promise for most of that BC office stock. I think the winners are going to be truly interesting historic buildings or mid-century buildings that have a real sense of place and connectivity or very modern new construction, ESG compliant, cutting edge buildings. But that middle stock, whether it's New York or it's London or it's Hong Kong or any any place are, are going to have to find another solution. And some of that is the impact of AI. Some of that's the impact of just simply back office functions, which occupied a lot of office space in many cities, continue to migrate to less expensive markets, whether it's cities in those countries or other countries altogether and going offshore. And that really requires us to think about space differently. You know, Midtown is a place that really doesn't have a food culture. It has a very nationally chain-anchored, very commodity-based food culture, which could also be said of lots of places in London, in London City, that has a similar kind of dynamic. How many Pret-a-Manger's do you need on, you know, in a five-block area? I think that as we think about kind of what resonates with people and resonates with kind of creating community, I think the ground plane in Midtown is is a key challenge, right? 
By contrast, I would say Madison Avenue, which had a lot of vacancy, is almost all reopened and full again, many with the stores who vacated during COVID. And I think part of the strategy around more savvy retailers was to vacate and to go back in at a much lower occupancy rate at a better format of store and to use that arbitrage to pay for new improvements. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I definitely think I think cities have to reinvent large parts of, of their office stock. But I think cities fundamentally are have dynamic offerings that you just can't get in the suburbs. Yes, and as you as you said, it's those office buildings that uh, you know are older. They're not sort of particularly heritage buildings, so they haven't got much going for them. They don't necessarily convert to residential. So, you know, what are we going to do with them? Sort of rhetorical question. Yes, exactly. <laughs> which actually takes us nicely on to sustainability and um, ESG. And, and obviously, one of the uh, USPs of Jamestown is that you own a lot of forestry. You actually grow your own trees, which I find incredibly impressive. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and how it came about and, and whether you're using your timber for your own construction? Sure. So, you know, I'd love to say that we had a brilliant strategy behind this, but I'm not sure. I think a couple of strategies converged at an important moment in time. And one of the strategies where we do have, we do have timber funds, which are as an alternative investment class in our closed-end fund structure are an appealing uh, investment model. And so, we have about 100,000 acres of timberland in the southern United States, which is used for, for pulp wood and for boxes and for home building, a variety of things. At the same time, we saw mass timber as a solution to sustainable buildings and solutions to kind of the challenges around the global steel costs and a variety of things become more appealing. And what we found out is that it was cheaper certainly before the war in Ukraine, to buy that mass timber from Eastern Europe than to, to process it from in the US domestically. We just didn't have an industry that was developed. And so we spent some time getting our timber FSC certified, which is an important designation. And we really leaned in with uh, Georgia Pacific, who is a local Southern kind of um, based company that does that. And we built the first mass timber building that was sourced from within 200 miles of the location and worked with the, the cross-laminated timber processing plant to disintermediate the forest timber growers are not making the money and the, the end distributors are not making the money. It's the processing in the middle, which is obviously oftentimes the issue and shipping costs and carbon and all of the the issues around distance really argued for that. And so we think this is a model that people should be using more broadly, certainly in Britain, where you have where you have opportunities for that, but but elsewhere in Central Europe, really to hyper locally provide a solution. The idea for this came from one of my partners who had been in Austria and had seen a building in Austria that oddly differently the concrete was made from the site. 
everything was locally made on site, which is not timber, because Austria also needs, you know, a timber structure, cross laminated timber structure construction. But really this idea of how do you take a hyper-local approach to how you build buildings? Certainly, I think any designation and certification in Europe and America has disregarded conveniently the cost of landfill for demolishing old buildings versus retrofitting old buildings versus building new buildings. And so I think it will become even more compelling to use cross-laminated timber going forward and or to renovate and restore older buildings versus just to solely construct new buildings. And so you are you're using the cross-laminated timber to build on your own on your own sites now. We are, and we are currently actively seeking investment in construction of cross-laminated timber production facilities so we can continue to hyper-locally deliver that. And so our next sites for this will be projects in South Carolina and North Carolina, which are adjacent to those lands as well. And is there the resistance to sort of large-scale timber construction in the US in, in the same way as there's been over here? So I think there's active lobbies in all countries against this, but a lot of that is people protecting their turf for the kind of building materials that the systems are so productive in. The evidence continues to reinforce that cross-laminated timber is a much safer building material at scale for you know higher, higher burn rates, temperatures before they start burning compared to steel and its melt ratio, but also just its ability to create safe environments. I think people think wood, which is a very kind of medieval reference point, that it could burn down and be at risk, which is why they went to what they call fireproof buildings. But in actuality, the opposite is true with technology today. I think the other real benefit to that, which we'll only see the more people occupy those kinds of buildings, is just the incredible warmth and finishes that come with the substrate and the structure that don't require you to finish all of this internal finish, um, certainly around the office environment and the residential environment. There's just an added benefit that makes people feel good. So I think the more people experience that, the more rapid you'll see the adoption of that. Yes, and we've just had our first multi-story office timber building developed by uh, the office group in the city. And it's, I think, the first uh, sort of multi-story commercial building made out of timber for, for an awfully long time. But I think we have this collective memory of the Great Fire of London. So uh, maybe that that holds us back. And I mean, generally, I mean, on sustainability, is Europe ahead of the US on, on that, would you say? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, without a doubt, I think Europe has taking steps to mandate it and to create both incentives and penalties for not complying. So I would certainly say Europe is ahead. I think we are starting to see, and evidence is showing in what I would call the super prime office market in the US, that occupiers really want that and that their employees want it and that they see value in it and that the highest level of sustainability and uh, we just saw a project in Boston, actually by Millennium, get passive house certification at 50 stories, which is tremendous, right? And so I think you're seeing more and more of that. 
It obviously is happening at the top end because the cost to get there is much higher in many cases. And so until that gap gets narrowed, I think you're always going to see the U.S. be a market that is divided on how essential it is versus the European countries being very focused on. No, that's interesting. And I mean, generally, there is so much change going on, you know, where, wherever you look, which must make it quite difficult to keep up, you know, because development takes quite a long time. I just wondered, I mean, what you, I mean, looking at your crystal ball, sort of see as, as the trends that are going to, we're going to be seeing over, say, you know, the next five years, are we going to see, you know, any change in the way we build or, you know, provide community centres? What, what do you see happening? It feels like two things are happening at once. The convergence of big tech and obviously COVID taught us that we could adopt technology at a very rapid pace. And I think for the, you're really seeing the most rapid adoption of that in our lifetime. And that's leaving many people behind. It's not just leaving people behind from a socioeconomic standpoint, but really from an age standpoint and an interest standpoint. Right, we we all have friends who say, "I'm just not going to engage with that." But what ends up happening is, increasingly, you can't check in at the airport and speak to a person. You can't order food and speak to a person. You can't services and goods just are being delivered in an automatic way. And so, the challenge in that is that we need to bring everyone along in this process or create workarounds for those who aren't. At the same time, that's happening. I think we're all craving for more meaningful interaction with one another. We're all craving for sort of simple pursuits. There's not anyone who doesn't love going to a Christmas market, for example, or a holiday market. And the idea that we want to connect in ways like just going around the pub and having a, a drink on, on uh, after work on Friday evening. That's a meaningful pursuit. And I think in England, craft is still very much a part of everyday life. So I think you're going to see very aggressive and divergent paths kind of coming together as we sort of craft what our life looks like going forward. Certainly more technology, but also more humanity. And I think that the two of those things have to find a way to coexist. And so we, I mean, that's for us, that's the you know, we lean into both very heavily, maybe because it's how we're wired, but I think it does reflect a little bit kind of what the way the world is operating. I think you're you're absolutely right. We do need the um, human element and uh, we also need to make the best of the technology that's um, available to us. So, Michael, there's so much more we could talk about but uh, we would be sitting here for hours so I'm going to say you know thank you so much for your time it's been so interesting and um, you know we all look forward to seeing more of Jamestown in the UK in the coming years. Well thank you very much Susan what a pleasure and um, look forward to seeing you in the coming months. Thank you so much Michael Phillips for your take on the ingredients that go into creating transformational places. And I really like the Leonard Bernstein analogy. Bernstein had a talent for making classical music cool and accessible. And Michael Phillips is doing just that for real estate. So that's it for now. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. 
please join us for the next Property Sheet podcast interview coming very soon. The Property Sheet podcast is brought to you by Mishcon Rare in association with the London Real Estate Forum and can be found at mishcon.com slash property along with all our interviews and programme notes. The podcasts are also available to subscribe to on your Apple podcast app and on Spotify and whatever podcast platform you use. Do continue to subscribe and let us have your feedback and comments and most importantly, suggestions for future guests. And of course, you can continue to follow me on Twitter at PropertyShe and on LinkedIn for a very regular commentary on all things real estate, prop tech and the built environment. See you soon. Mm-hmm.